Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of the Brothers F Bookcast. This time we are joined for the first time ever by the first ever Brothers F non-brother guest, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. John Foley. You want to say hi, very, John? Very honored to be here. Thank you, Francisco. <laughs> well, I don't know if you should feel honored, but um, I'm pleased to have you here. You're a, you're a friend from from uh, from college, and uh, you're uh, you're a great dude. Uh, can you, uh, no, I mean you are. You're a good dude. Can you can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, what's your what's your deal? I know what your deal is, but can you tell the <laughs> listeners what your deal is? Sure. So I am a full time practicing artist and illustrator. Um, I was trained in fine art, um, particularly painting, under a master painter, Paul Ingbertson, for the past, uh, what, I guess now I've been three years out of my trip formal training, um, but had about three to three and a half years, actually, of, of training under him. Uh, and that was after not getting a whole lot of training in a mainstream college um, major uh, at Notre Dame. I would, I would uh, you know. Thank you know, thankful for many of the things I, I had through Notre Dame, but the fine art training I would I would say I, I got most entirely from my classical teacher. So that's wow. that's a brief synopsis. Sure. I mean I I uh I you know, I saw some of the stuff you did while you were at Notre Dame and I thought it was pretty good, but you know, what do I know? I'm Thanks. kind of a, kind of a Philistine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad you liked it. You know, it I don't have too much against it, but you know, I think it got it got better since then. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed how I complimented and insulted you at the same time. <laughs> I liked it, but I also had bad taste. <laughs> uh, no, it's funny. It's funny. Taste is one of those funny things when it's around art, and uh, I love I love the scene actually at the beginning of the story. Not to jump jump into things too fast, where they talk about. <laughs> the members of the club and the, the port with the cigar versus the guy who just was like, ah, just like beer in a pipe. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the story a little bit. It's a story in part about art, which I think is, I think is why you picked it. Is am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, it's a story, uh, by Dorothy Sayers. And uh, I think you know a little bit more about her than I do. So can you introduce her to the audience? Because she is she is uh, my one of my brothers just absolutely loves her. And and if this story is any um, indication, she's a brilliant writer. So I'd like to hear a little more about what her deal is. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, she's really awesome. So she was an academic um, as well as a very good popular writer. A combination which. You know, with the exception of J.R.R. Tolkien, I have a hard time coming up with a lot more examples of that. But I feel like she's perhaps of a similar caliber in the sense that she brings a lot of knowledge and a lot of fun, fun stuff from her academic world into her fiction writing, which I think is just brilliant stuff. Just so she does the Lord Peter Whimsey series, which... This short story actually features Lord Peter Whimsey, who's, you know, yeah, sort of this, this hero of this other, um, you know, mystery series. But she's done a lot of work, including um, some great essays. The Lost Tools of Learning is one of her most famous essays. It's sort of 
um, big in the classical education community, um, as well as um, one of my favorite books of hers called The Mind of the Maker, which I find to be one of the best explorations in aesthetics that I've ever read. So um, maybe that's, that's, I think she was at Oxford too. It wasn't, you know, that she was just any academic. She was, she was pretty sharp. What was her, what was her specialty? That's a great question. Um, I think it was some sort of classics or literature. I don't know. I, but so I, I do know that she did a translation of Dante's Inferno, which is awesome and has an amazing com- commentary. So I imagine probably literature. I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, I don't. All right, fair enough. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, you, 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 do know, you do know you do know a good good deal more about her than I do. Uh, but let, let's talk about this story in particular. So, um, you know, you suggested Dorothy Sayers, and I asked you to pick a story, and you picked the abominable history of the man with the copper fingers. And when you read that title, the first question is, "What the hell is going on? <laughs> what, what is going on here?" Um, absolutely. <laughs> so why, why, why this? Yeah, I, I found it an awesome, um, example of, you know, just a fun mystery, but also just packed with a whole lot of other images dealing with art and dealing with, um, you know, just, just, I don't know, maybe life in general, but, um, so this, uh, this particular story is sort of what I, uh, I would articulate it as maybe an anti-Pygmalion story, if that makes sense. Ooh, I didn't think about that at all, but I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> so Pygmalion is is this myth um, that's, yeah, um, basically the myth of an ancient Greek sculptor who loves his work so much and crafts it so much. And, and so basically his work being this beautiful image of a lady, um, you know, the, the Greeks were into these, you know, classical nude sculptures. And so he just just pours his heart into this sculpture until it comes alive. Like the gods grant that, you know, basically his desire for this beautiful woman to be fulfilled by her coming alive and basically, you know, them going off and getting married or whatever, you know, riding off in the sunset. Yeah. You know, so when he said Pygmalion, I thought of My Fair Lady. Yeah. And I, and I totally... But of course, it, there's it, you know, there's the Greek myth. But I was like, how is he going to tie this to My Fair Lady? But the, of course, the Greek myth makes sense. And I, I see what you're driving at there with it being an anti-Pygmalion story. And uh, I guess, spoiler alert, we should probably explain how it's an, it, how it's an anti-Pygmalion story. <laughs> Do you want to go ahead and give us the synopsis? Sure, sure. So the gist of the story is this, is that there's this extremely... Um, well, so first the story set up in this club. It's a bunch of very sort of posh British guys talking in this club, and they're they're telling stories from their life. And um, the first narrator is this actor who's just an incredibly handsome guy, and he's um, a lot like you, Francisco. A lot, indeed, indeed, a relatable content. Um, <laughs> and you know, he he goes. Um, what happens is that. Um, he's, he gets involved with this, this artist, uh, Loder and this woman, Maria, 
And uh, Maria and Loder are having relationship problems, and the relationship ends up not working out, to put it mildly. And uh, <laughs> Loder, Loder, Loder blames uh, uh, Mr. Hansen, whose name is escaping me. What's the dude's name? Uh, what, is it? what is it? It starts with a V, yeah. Varden? That sounds right. Yep. Um, so what happens to Varden is that he's planning to take a trip uh, abroad, and before he takes that trip, uh, Loder, the artist, invites him to spend some time with him in his house. Uh, so he goes there, and while he's staying with Loder, uh, the the hero of the story, the the detective, I guess, uh, Peter Whimsey, comes in and tells him that uh, he needs to leave um, because Loder Loder's going to kill him. Now the story starts with Varden, or you know, Mister Hansen telling the story. And as he's telling the story, Peter Whimsy comes in and says and tells them that, uh, you know, he was actually the person who warned uh, uh, V away from the house. And then uh, Peter Whimsy comes in to tell his half of the story. Uh, do, would you would you mind jumping in there? Uh, <laughs> I would love to. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. The details of the actual mystery escaped me a little bit. If oh, that's, that's okay. I, I I just read it, so I can keep going if you like. Well, I, um, I yeah. How would you how would you finish it up for us and, and refresh yeah. my memory slightly? Just yeah, no, absolutely. I don't I don't I don't blame you one bit. Um, so Peter Whimsy kind of jumps in in the middle of uh, Varden's story, and he. Uh, he says, yeah, like I was the dude. I'm the guy who came in and warned you. And so he tells the story of how he figured out what was going on. So there's the statue of uh, the man's ex-lover, Maria, in the house. And he looked at it and he noticed this tiny little detail about the way her toes were sculpt- sculpted. And based on that, he, he, he began to suspect that this was actually uh, not just a statue, but a tomb. That uh, this this ties in with the Greek idea of idealizing figures in their sculpture. They're always striving not just for realism, but for this idealized form that corrected a lot of the imperfections that they saw in human individuals to try and get at this overarching truth and beauty that was in the human form. So, just by my art note, to interject there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the the thing, the one thing that, according to to uh, Loder, that was wrong with her body was that um, her her the toe next to her big toe was either too long or too short. I can't remember which. But he he generally when he depicted her, he fixed it. But uh, Peter Whimsy noticed that in this statue, that uh, you know, so called flaw was not fixed. And that kind of tipped him off that something might be amiss. So he does a little investigating and he finds that uh, Loader's got a secret chamber where he's forging a passport and he's got poison and everything looks really suspicious. And he just, he comes to the conclusion that he's planning to kill uh, Varden the day before he leaves for Australia, uh, forge his passport, have somebody else go on the trip. And that way, get away with a perfect murder because no one will think he's dead if he's abroad. And, um, you know, he figures it out and he goes to confront uh, Loder in his uh, secret uh, chamber that, you know, there's like a secret, there's a secret passageway. It's all very, uh, uh, you know, it's just very, it's like very moneyed, 
you know, British, you know, (laughs) you know what it reminds me a lot of, have you ever read PG Woodhouse? Oh yes. Love PG Woodhouse. Yes. This is. Yep. Yeah. Very similar. Like, you know, sort of like, you know, I, I guess whimsy isn't dumb, but there's, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, lot of English gentlemen with more brains and leisure than money. <laughs> more, more, more leisure and money than brains. Excuse me. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know I definitely, I, mean. I definitely agree. I think it's sort of like PG Woodhouse meets, um, yeah, I don't know, something like Sherlock Holmes and, you know, something like Jane Austen, but not, not probably quite as good on the romance side. Well, she's like the English Agatha Christie, right? Sort of. I mean, I, I tell people like it's more than Agatha Christie I, for, for my buck, bang for my buck. It's, Agatha Christie has the, the murder mystery, but this is like, you know, just so much fun to read like sentence to sentence writing as well as, you know, like the comedy and the romance too thrown in. So I feel like it's, it's I, I don't have much patience for regular mysteries, but I love, I love Dorothy Sayers. Okay. Uh, that's, that's interesting. It's, um, so not not a mystery fan in general, but a fan of Dorothy Sayers. Yeah, um, that's true. That's true. Oh, I guess we should explain the title, which we have yet to have explained. Um, so what happens is, and, and this doesn't make any sense to me at all, but I'm just going to suspend my disbelief. But when <laughs> Loder, the villain, dies, he falls into this vat of poison. I think it's arsenic. And something with the, the graphite on his hands reacts with the arsenic, and he becomes his hands becomes covered in, in copper. And uh, Peter Whimsy manages to escape without anyone realizing that he was involved in any way with Loder's death, uh, which he seems to think might've been a crime, but doesn't really sound like a crime to me. Um, though I'm not, a, <laughs> you know, not a criminal law expert, but um, <laughs> no, no advice given here, right? No legal advice. <laughs> But he, uh, his hand becomes encrusted in copper, and they can't fix it, so he's buried that way. So I mean, you know, I, 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 uh, I may not always be the most perspective and acute of readers, but even I can tell that's probably some kind of symbol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh. What do you think it symbolizes, Francisco? Well, you know, I I don't know exactly, but I know something's going on here. Like, so, so he, you, you're right. We got the reverse Pygmalion. Instead of the statue coming to life, he kills the real woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he becomes something of a statue himself. How so? Well, he gets covered in copper. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 I wonder if there's other like sort of um, pre foreshadowings or something like that of how he almost becomes um, almost a caricature of himself, the way that Varden talks about him. He talks about how he has this trick of repeating himself that he finds. Um, and this, like, there's some, like, you know, something about him seemed more real, like the description of, of um, this guy Loder seemed fascinating from that respect to me this, this time through. So, let me ask you this. What do you, what do you think about the story as an artist? Is there something there that appeals to you? Cause you, 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 you've already said that you're an, an admirer of Dorothy Sayers theory of aesthetics. So do yeah. you see any of that in the story? Absolutely. Like I, I definitely am reading it sort of thinking about, okay, the process of how an artist makes art 
And one of the one of the big things that Dorothy Sayers talks about in her theory of aesthetics is basically an artist has to go from idea um, first and then go into the craft, like understanding a craft, um, like, you know, whether it's sculpture, painting, writing, making a play um, and take that idea and transform it into something that's intelligible for the craft um, and that is conforming to the rules to a, of it. And, um, and basically it, it is vitally transformed, even though the idea stays the same in a certain sense. And then final step that she describes is sort of the, the audience's acceptance of it and how that actually can change the world. And she actually takes these three ideas and she describes them as the father, son, and spirit almost of art. So like, you know, it's a, it's a great analogy in her book and I'm going to, I'm going to do a very petty, horrible job of, of relaying it here, I'm sure. But basically the father is the concept in art. You know, there's this grand idea, like in the beginning, this disembodied thing that comes to the artist's head and that in a certain sense is almost fully formed even before an artist sets his hand to doing anything, to, to making to making the sculpture, to making the, the painting, to making the book. But then that's when sort of this crafting happens, this idea of, you know, you're an expert painter. So you take this idea and you enflesh it in paint. You know, or you, you know, make it into this dynamic story or, or, um, and then there's the final step of, okay, what does this, what does this, you know, actual embodied sculpture, story, painting do to the world? What is it, you know, like sort of like this Pentecost of this idea actually being released, you know, so that now that John Folly made this this amazing painting. Now Francisco reacts to it. Now my, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, like the, the art critics down the street, they write about it in the globe, whatever, you know, but it, it makes changes in the rest of the world. So, um, so anyway, this is, this is a long winded way to say there's sort of this, also this backward thing that's happening when Loder makes Maria into a sculpture. It's basically taking, instead of going from an idea to you know, the craft to the Pentecost type of thing. It's sort of like this reverse thing. There's like this emotional disaster that's happening of him, like, you know, basically despising and at the same time wanting Maria, you know, so there's this emotional like anti-Pentecost. And then there's this, you know, basically the craft, you know, anti-craft, you know, it's basically instead of doing crafting, He's he's taking the the skipping the step and just basically making a mold of this person, and you know in effect, like it's sort of this this anti idea. It's it's you know there's no idea behind it except for just stealing this person's body and erasing essentially the idea of their soul. So it's it's sort of funny to me. It's almost like reversing each part of that um, theory. You know, it's my it's my reading into it at this point. Yeah, that's that's really deep. Uh, is, is, is it too is it too on the nose to say that he's objectifying her? Uh, I, I think that's I think that's a pretty solid uh, observation. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. that's that's I quite mean, true. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, absolutely, absolutely, and just changing, yeah, changing what's spirit, what's true, yeah, yeah, taking her down. So that was a somewhat abstract and philosophical description of the process of making art. Is that true to your experience? 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me, like how how true it is, honestly. Like, you know, this idea of, you know, yeah, sometimes you just get this idea, this inspiration. Um, you know, sometimes it, you know, it's just all there all at once. Sometimes you spin it around in your head. But yeah, like this this idea centered centered aspect. And then um, you know, then there's this sort of like the next phase. Like it's definitely very much these phases. Um, one of the things that I think is fascinating, I'm probably going too tangential here, um, but she sort of talks about artists, you know, sort of leaning towards one phase or another of these things. And, um, I think it's funny because I think probably in my work, I tend towards more like this craft orientation. Um, you know, almost like, you know, there's, there's, she says like, there's every artist sort of leans towards one aspect and sort of usually has deficiencies in, in one or two of the others. Um, but it's, it's, it's a fun thing. Anyway, I, I, it, it probably doesn't mean too much to anyone, but, um, no, at well, least, you know, I, in, in the abstract some, here to me, but I mean, I think it might be helpful if, if, if you could give like an example of something that you've created. Um, I mean, you're primarily a painter. Am I wrong about that? No, that's right. That's right. So oil painting primarily. So can yeah. you give... An example of, of a painting of yours that in just talk us through that process in, in maybe slightly less philosophical terms. Sure. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. So yeah, one painting that occurs. So um, <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I do book illustrations. So we talked earlier about um, before this podcast started, um, Mr. Meehan's mildly amusing mythical mammals. Um and this yeah, is definitely fast. Sorry. Say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah. No, don't try. Don't try. You'll knock yourself out. Um, but, um, but yeah, so um, that, that's one that I definitely looked at, you know, and, and, you know, my buddy and I came up with this, this scheme to do all these paintings to illustrate a bunch of his poems. Um, and this was a type of painting that I definitely was like, yeah, this, there's these great ideas and then trying to get those, um, you know, basically onto canvas uh, was was my job. Um, but I would say this is this is one instance where I found this was a very idea driven piece of art, um, and the craft was sort of following the idea and almost less important than the idea itself. And then the spirit, hopefully, also is going to be something that, like, yeah, it's it's meant to be shared. It's meant, you know, it's basically a children's book, but it's. You know, it's, uh, we, we like to call it the Pixar of children's books. We want it to be something that appeals to adults and the children as they're reading it, as they're getting these great ideas, also enjoying the craft of these images. But in a certain sense, the craft is, is you know, less the, the central part of this work, as opposed to, for instance, when I do a still life, um, you know, a still life painting, the idea is there. Like the idea usually is a lot simpler in a still life in the, in the um, sense that it's not very... Um, much dealing with the arts or humanities or anything like that. So much it's, you know, it's like making a melody. It's like, okay, how does, how do these things fit together? These objects in terms of color, in terms of size, in terms of shape, in terms of arrangement, almost to make a beautiful piece of visual music. Um, so when I make a still life, I imagine myself almost as like a, a, a composer who's making a piece of music that's, yeah, it's just abstract notes and things like that. But you have to put the notes in right relationship to each other. You have to make the chords feel right, the timing feel right. The same type of thing happens when you do a good still life. You have to try and make the colors, the shapes, 
all of those things. You want to make harmonies out of them. You don't want to just make realism for realism's sake. This is this is something I thought was also a fun conversation from the story was when they're talking about the art of this particular sculptor at the beginning and sort of docking in points for just being too realistic and not making it something beautiful as well. Do you remember that conversation? I do, yes. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a funny thing. Like I, I think there's a lot of beauty in real life, but the artist's, in a certain sense, specific call is to is to take that and to to almost purify it of you know and and arrange it and to and to basically make something that is particularly beautiful about it um, that can be shared with others. So um, so yeah, yeah that's you know, that, yeah. No, I was just going to say it's interesting. I hadn't thought about the realism point, but I think that does sort of tie back into him literally, you know, kind of taking the soul out of this woman. And you could say that the soul is also missing in his art. If he's too much of a realist and there's, there's not, there's something missing there. Maybe that, maybe that ties somehow into the impulse to, uh, uh, lover, your lover. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. That's interesting. That poem. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. So t- talk to us about that poem again. I, I remember it a little bit now that you're talking about it, but like, there's like the head in a, in a, um, well, I, I, you know, I, I just, I, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I, I, the, the basic for the audience, the basic premise of the poem is the dudes lie next to his lover and strangles her to death. Cause he doesn't want to lose her. Yes. Right. Yes. So, you know, you know, very, you know, this guy's got very strong Prophyria's lover energy. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, that's that I guess that's a little bit of a tangent. I, I guess my point was that if, the, if they're talking about his art, you know, missing something, being being excessively realistic. Well, it seems like, um, you know, I think there's maybe there's something there. There's something there with 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 the, the, the art is the art is lacking a soul. And then he sucks the soul out of his woman. Yeah, he's like a vampire. <laughs> yeah yeah i think there's i think there's definitely something to that i agree I we agree. have to we have to bring all these podcasts back to vampires because we're trying to uh <laughs> we're, try, we're trying to uh tap into the uh the twilight fans but uh <laughs> well i think I'm, this would have a certain appeal to the, that type of group don't you uh, maybe i don't know I'm, I, <laughs> I don't i um you know we uh Anyway, we'll, we'll leave, we'll leave uh, Edward Cullen out of this. Um, <laughs> a sparkly vampire, not a soul-sucking one. Yeah. Um, well, so before before we, we, we wrap up, can you just tell us a little more about the book? Because you've kind of intrigued me here a little bit. Uh, oh. Mythical Mammals? Yes, please. Yeah, well, so Mythical Mammals um, is a compilation of 26 poems one for each letter of the alphabet and um the the title suggests it's all about mythical mammals made up mammals that my buddy matthew Meehan um came up with for each of these letters and then i illustrated um and the poems are just a ton of fun but he's one of these uh super nerds if you will and i think he would forgive me for using that term mm. but each one of the poems sort of gets at some aspect of classical literature or 
you know, philosophy or humanities or civics. He's, he's, he's into a lot of, a lot of things, but um, each one of these poems is sort of like this, this puzzle that works with the pictures and that he wants to try and get young readers as well as young at heart readers who will be reading to the young readers to help sort of jog their imaginations to start asking more questions about some of these, these really rich, beautiful subjects that are the heritage of Western civilization in a certain sense that he as an academic has been so excited about that he wanted to share and in fact, make these poems to make it more accessible to modern readers. Um, and I was enlisted to, to that end to help make these things accessible, to make them joyful and beautiful and um, hopefully to be a treasure for the ages in its own right and um, help, help many generations, um, particularly to understand friendship and to understand how do we make good friendships? What are the enemies of friendship? What are the aids to friendship? So um, if, you, if you look at the book with those, those things in mind, you might be able to, to unlock a lot of the um, hidden, hidden meaning and hidden truths that um, Dr. Meehan and I hopefully worked hard to bury well, but not too deeply um, in those poems and illustrations. So that's, that's my, my quick, quick sell on the book. Not too quick, but hopefully intriguing enough. Well, you know, maybe uh, maybe I, I could buy the book for my uh, my kids, and uh, after I read it, and and uh, you know, if if uh, maybe maybe we can have you back on, we can do a more of a more of a discussion of uh, of uh, magical mammals. Is that the word, or is it marvelous mammals, or what? What is it? Mythical, mythical Myth- mammals. <laughs> <laughs> I said like literally every other word. Um, <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great, Francisco. I'd love to love to hear what you think about it and love to talk to you about it. Yeah, I mean we don't normally do kids' books, but I mean this one sounds uh this one sounds like it might be uh might be worth doing. Um so uh as a final note, you know, you are an artist, you sell your art. Is there a place where people can find that? Absolutely. Please do visit my website at www.johnfolly.com. You can sign up for my email list there. Um, and would love to hear from you. And also I have a, I have a blog, Beauty Advocacy, where I talk about a lot of art nerd stuff. So if you're interested in that, please, you know, sign up for that email list. I'll keep you in touch. Beauty Advocacy, huh? Yep. 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 Who, who knew uh, beauty needed advocates, but perhaps well, it does. It, it does. It does. It's, it's interesting. They're one of my favorite quotes, I'll have to get it to you, but, um, basically, uh, who is it? It, oh man. Oh, it's just flying from my imagination just now. But anyway, it, it's basically to the effect that um, beauty, as much as truth and goodness, needs standing up for now more than ever in our modern time. And it's, I need to get you the actual quote, but it, it's a great one. It definitely is a lot of food for thought. Okay. So uh, that's, uh, it sounds like you may be a, maybe a Roger Scruton fan, but maybe we'll, uh, we'll let them lie for. Perfect. Um, yeah, so I, I think we can uh, we can wrap it up there. We should probably we should probably finish uh, just with a a little something about the story. Um, is there? I don't know. Do you have? We can always edit this out if it's not if it's if it's a dud. But do you have any? Uh, do you have any parting thoughts? Do you, is there anything there that you really think needs to be said that maybe hasn't been said or 
or something that the readers can take away from this? Well, I think, I think just the treat of the dialogue um, of this is just, I mean, you got to read this, this so, (laughs) so carefully. I feel like there's, this is, this is another one where I think there's buried treasure. Um, But, um, but yeah, just, just enjoy that, that dialogue. It's, it's just so much fun. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's line after line where you can get allusions to different classical pieces and, you know, food for thought out of it. Ah, I, I don't know. Is there a favorite quote that you had? I, I, ah, man, I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I can't pick out one right off the top of my head, but it's, it's just so much fun. Um, so yeah, I'd say enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, and you know, like I said, a strong PG Woodhouse energy. So if you like, uh, <laughs> if you like Jeeves and Worcester, it, this would probably be a good fit. And it did, it did sort of, uh, it did sort of warm my heart just by how similar it was to that. Anyway, let's um, let's uh, wrap it up. I'm gonna hit the the pause button. Awesome.